1: I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, stick your head out and yell, I'm
0: as bad as hell, and I'm not gonna take this anymore!
4: We must not allow ourselves to be intimidated. Our task is not only to win the battle, but to win the war. I'm kidding,
3: we're not in Kansas anymore. Take a look at this cutway through her eyes if
1: you really want to see something. Fighting. You're out of order! You're out of order! The whole trial is
3: out of order!
4: You have meddled the primal forces of nature! And you will atone
3: Well, it is another jewel of a day in the GTA. Sunny, not too hot, beautiful blue skies... And the nights have been nice, nice and cool. We have all the windows open here. Great for sleeping. Great weather for sleeping. I really love this time of year. Hey, uh, congratulations to the Bray Bluff College baseball team in Toronto. My, my twin boys play for the team. One plays center field. The other is the catcher. And yesterday they won their semi-final playoff round. And now they're going to the finals. Very exciting. You know, I'd much rather talk about high school baseball than the Blue Jays, who, uh, as I mentioned last week, will never get another thin dime from me for their shameful treatment of relief pitcher Anthony Bass, who was merely standing up for his Christian values. I shun the Blue Jays, I shun the disgraceful Los Angeles Dodgers, and I shun Major League Baseball. Yesterday, I was speaking with Elie Continentel from True North about the uh, appalling exhibit at the Quebec City Museum of so-called civilization where young children were present and a man as part of this exhibit exposed his genitals to the children. This was a pride event. I was wondering, hoping that that might have marked rock bottom in this country in terms of the depravity and sexualization of children. There is no pride in such an exhibit. And I believe most gays and lesbians would agree. I uh, I firmly believe that was criminal behavior. And the organizers and presenters of that exhibit, which was called Love Me Gender, they should face criminal prosecution. So, too, should the individuals at the museum who signed off on this reprehensible exhibit, inexcusable. And the parents who took their children to this exhibit should be ashamed of themselves, deeply, deeply ashamed. If this is what Pride Month represents, it's seriously time to think about ending. Pride Month. And thankfully, more and more parents in this sleepy, complacent land are waking up. It seems even Canadians have their limits. Up in Ottawa where they have a very radical school board. All of the schools in the Ottawa Public School Board and the Ottawa Catholic School Board are flying pride flags. And according to CTV, last Thursday, which was June 1st, the first day of Pride Month, Ottawa's Public School Board reported nine of its schools had absent rates of over 40%, with two schools exceeding 60%. A school board spokesman up in Ottawa told CTV News, some parents indicated their child would be absent from class due to the possibility of pride activities. 40% absences at nine schools, 60% absences at two schools. And yet, get this, the headline for the CTV story reads, some Ottawa parents keep kids home from school due to pride activities. Some parents keep kids home, some 60% of students were absent at two schools, 40% at nine schools, some parents. The headline reads, in New Brunswick, get this, parents in New Brunswick have also had enough, it would seem. They have limits. Someone who um, goes by the handle Raven News on Twitter tweeted this today, In New Brunswick on Friday, June the 1st, 2023, parents had enough. Some 31,000 of 90,000 students were kept home by loving parents who will no longer allow their children to be sexualized by the school system. 31,000 of 90,000 students in New Brunswick. Now, I have no idea if that's accurate. But I do know the conservative government in New Brunswick, led by Premier Blaine Higgs, is reviewing certain portions of that province's gender and sex, sexual orientation policy. It's known as Policy 713. And the conservatives are rethinking the current policy, which currently prevents parents, for example. There are a number of aspects to 713. One of them is that schools are not to tell parents if their child under the age of sixteen has changed their name and uh, their quote and quote gender, and Premier Higgs has hinted he wants to change Policy Seven Thirteen so that parents must be informed. I mean, this of course is the only reasonable course of action. The parents must have that right. It is they don't have. They, they, it's not that they must have it; they already have it. That's an inalienable right, but it must be restored. It's insane absolutely insane for teachers and school administrators to think they have any right to withhold such information from parents. And Higgs is also, again, Premier of New Brunswick, also reviewing whether so-called transgendered female athletes, in other words, biological males who self-identify as girls or women, he's rethinking whether they'll be allowed to participate in girls' sports. And finally, Premier Higgs, And his government reviewing the section of the policy 713 that allows access to washrooms and change rooms on the basis of gender identity. In other words, Higgs is thinking of keeping so-called transgendered girls, biological males who self-identify as women or girls out of girls' washrooms, showers and change rooms. This is a good start. Let's hope Premier Higgs does not cave to the mob and he does take action on policy 713. And then let's hope other premiers develop a spine and follow in Premier Blaine Higgs' footsteps. Sue Ann Levy from True North, terrific journalist. She'll be here an hour or two to discuss the culture of fear and silence at the Toronto District School Board. But she wrote a piece the other day about pride. And she writes, and she's a lesbian. She writes, there are some 67 countries in the world that still consider homosexuality and gay rights a sin. Some countries have made homosexuality punishable by death. According to recent reports, executions for gay sex occur in Iran, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Yemen, and Somalia. In three more countries, the death penalty for consensual same-sex relations is on the books. Brunei, Mauritania, Nigeria. But by all reports, executions have not been carried out in recent years. All we have to do is look at a U- Uganda, which recently passed some of the harshest anti-gay laws just days before Pride season began. Again, this is Sue Ann Levy writing in the uh, for TNC.news, True North. Its government, Uganda, has imposed the death penalty for what is described as aggravated homosexuality, which includes gay people having sex with a minor or if the accused suffers from HIV. Those human rights abuses, she writes should have been the focus as pride season kicked off this week. But in what has become an increasingly divided LGBT community in Canada, the queer activists have hijacked the discourse. They've decided those institutions and assorted others that don't fly pride flags or embrace gender ideology or don't shout their gayness from the rooftops or don't march in lockstep with their increasingly radical way of thinking are engaged in hatred. Then she goes on to reprint a tweet from a socialist activist that she says is highly indicative of their way of thinking. The tweet from this activist says, wishing all the homophobes a super uncomfortable month. Sue Ann Levy continues, still it is a painful, it is painful for many of us, meaning uh, those in the gay and lesbian community, Sue Ann Levy again is a lesbian, uh, who lived in the clo- uh, in the closet or fought for gay rights in a far less tolerant era to see the divisiveness and the shrieking of these activists in search of a cause. She writes, I've repeatedly said they do not do any of us in the gay community a service with their attempts to bully anyone who doesn't march to their precise drumbeat. If there is any sort of backlash, it's because parents and others who are perfectly accepting of my marriage to a woman are tired of being dictated to by the loud, out-of-control queer activists. Again, Sue Ann Levy. True North, absolutely correct. All right, Joe Kovacs is another award-winning journalist. He's at WND, and he'll be here, last order of business in hour two. This is interesting. He's reporting on this possible scenario where Joe Biden, who's very desperate, you know, he's trying to hold on and he wants to run in 2024 that he might select Barack Obama or have Barack Obama foisted upon him as his uh, vice presidential nominee as part of the 2024 ticket. I don't know how that would work constitutionally since Barack Obama would be forbidden from assuming the office of president since he's already served his eight years. However, apparently there's a path and he'll explain it. Sue Ann Levy, hour two again, as I mentioned on the TDSB's culture of fear and silence Greg Hill will be here also hour two. He's a veteran of the Canadian Air Force and worked as an airline captain for Air Canada for two decades before being fired for refusing the COVID jab. He's now founder of Free to Fly Canada. He'll be here to talk about his organization's class action lawsuit um, against the government for arbitrary COVID-related travel restrictions. This hour, Space Matters with Chris Vaughn. We'll take a look at what's happening in the night sky this week. Your calls later this hour at 289-275-9600, 289-275-9600. The lines are now open, by the way, 289-275-9600. But first, special rapporteur David Johnston has finally relented and announced he'll testify before a House of Commons committee. And we'll also learn about how the Privy Council office sought to spin messaging around COVID jab injuries and deaths and even fiddle with the data in order to downplay adverse events. Tom Korski from Black Locks Reporter is next. The Richard Serrett Show often running for Tuesday, June the 6th in the year of our Lord, 2023. Fact and nonverba.
4: We're back as the Richard Serrett Show continues on News Talk Saga 960 AM. Mm
3: -hmm. I am shocked. Shocked, I say. The uh, Privy Council office, and we'll find out what they're all about in a moment here, in a uh, secret memo, was basically trying to prepare the government for adverse vaccine injury reports in the news, and the media, and how they could spin, how they should spin that messaging to uh, ensure public confidence in the vaccines. In other words brainwash, propaganda. Tom Korski, managing editor of Black Locks Reporter is with us. Hey, Tom, how are you? I'm well, thank you, Richard. First of all, just a quick civics lesson. What does the Privy Council Office have to do with this? I would think this would be a Health Canada memo. Why does this memo come out of the Privy Council Office?
5: Privy Council Office is the top of the federal bureaucracy. They are cabinet aides. They are the Number one federal agency, the Privy Council office, they tell everyone else what to do. All right. So, again,
3: they they have this secret memo going out saying, basically, let's massage the message. Let's spin the message. If there are any adverse reactions or deaths that come about as a result of the COVID-19 vaccine, let's prepare. Let's figure out how to, you know, massage it, spin it, even if necessary, uh, skew the date or the statistics in order to ensure public confidence in the vaccine.
5: That sounds like... Yeah, it's a really dark... It is. is. It's a dark memo. It's it's like a Dow Chemical memo from the 1970s, right? It's what you do when you have product liability, but you want, as they put it, a winning communication strategy, quote-unquote. This is five months after the Department of Health licensed the first vaccine for COVID. Five months. And in the memo, they say... Exactly what you just summarized, Richard, we need to have a winning slogan, a winning communications strategy when there are reports of adverse, serious adverse health effects from people who take the vaccine. And as we know, we're typically uh, coerced into doing it because otherwise you couldn't go to work, you couldn't go to a restaurant, you couldn't get on a train or an airplane. You were a federal employee, you were threatened with suspension without pay or firing. In some cases, that happened. And what were the winning strategies? Exactly what you mentioned, Richard. One was downplay the statistics. Say, well, you know, it's a chance in a million. And you know, that's statistically true. Millions of Canadians took a vaccine, no problem. But that's of no consolation to people who died why is that any consolation to people who had heart inflammation heart attacks spontaneous abortions these are documented incidents by the public health agency the other winning strategy they came up with was well kind of question the the data say well th- was it really because of the vaccination could, it, could it, there have been other factors? It's so complicated, it's uncertain to say. It's an absolutely cynical and contrived memo. If this was not the government of Canada, if it was a private corporation and the class action lawyers got a hold of this, oh, their heads would explode, Richard. Exactly,
3: exactly. 427 deaths they're admitting to as a result of the vaccine, 427. I remember... A 60 Minutes report back in 1960, Mike Wallace uh, grilling the vaccine manufacturer that was responsible for the swine flu, which was later pulled as a result of 25 deaths, 25, 427 deaths attributed to the COVID vaccine in this country.
5: Um, We know. We know by their own. they, They have a vaccine compensation fund, $75 million. They've started to accept claims. They update the figures every six months. We watch. They've paid out millions so far. Richard, they will pay out funeral expenses for people who die from taking the vaccine on the advice of their local public health officer. Why is this significant? I can give you the names of journalists who have quoted this as disinformation that there were vaccine injuries or deaths. Guess where they got that idea from mm. the same people who came up with the secret memo. Oh, yeah. It's so cynical. It is so cynical.
3: Tom Korsky, managing editor Blacklock's reporter, stay with us, Tom, when we come back. Special rapporteur David Johnston has finally relented, and he'll take three hours of questions before a House of Commons committee on his dealings with the Trudeau Foundation. That story's next. The Richard Sarrat show continues right after these on Saga nine sixty.
4: Let's get back at it on News Talk Saga 960 AM. It's the Richard Serra Show.
3: All right. Welcome back. Well, bless his heart. Special Rapporteur David Johnston, just weeks after, weeks after uh, narrowly avoiding a, uh, a summons to appear before a House of Commons committee uh, investigating his uh, dealings with the Trudeau Foundation, he's relented and said, yes, he'll take questions. He'll sit before the committee uh, for about three hours if he doesn't uh, fall asleep, I guess that is. Tom Korski stays with us, managing editor Blacklock's reporter. Tom, why do you suppose David Johnston had a change of heart? Was it just uh, the pressure from the the media? Um, He he looks at the polls like uh,
6: other politicians?
5: I think it was embarrassing, and I think there was some pressure. This is the Public Accounts Committee that's trying to unravel what happened at the Trudeau Foundation with Chinese donations very large six-figure donations that were misreported. That's a problem. He was a member of the foundation. He only resigned in March. He was a member going back to 2018. And they wanted to ask him all about his knowledge of what was going on at the foundation. This is a foundation that was so shaky. The entire board and the chief executive officer resigned on the same day, back on the April 10th of April. That was after disclosures. The Canadian Security Intelligence Service warned them. Look at you guys may be Patsies here for Chinese interference. Johnson finally relented. That'll probably be next week. This is completely separate, of course, from Johnson's committee appearance today at House Affairs Committee on his famous report that absolved cabinet of any wrongdoing whatsoever involving their handling of these very serious security warnings of alleged election fraud involving foreign agents. And how did that uh, how did that testimony be f- uh, before yeah. the committee go today? Yeah, not so hot. Johnson said a couple of the things that were noteworthy. He admitted he had not seen all the evidence. He saw what they gave him. That's the prime minister's office. That's what he saw. And there were some serious gaps in the documentary trail that were pointed out by MPs. One gap was pointed out was he never spoke to Elections Canada. Well, that's the agency that is investigating complaints (laughs) interference. He didn't bother to pick up the phone and talk to Elections Canada. I'm aghast, said one member of the House Affairs Committee. It doesn't make any sense. Why would you do that? And Johnson said, well, you know, I only had eight weeks and it was there was an ocean of information. I'm quoting him accurately, ocean of information. And then he was asked about the MP for Don Valley North, famous MP Handong. And he said in his report, very little noticed part of his report by apologists for cabinet."
2: is running out. This message is paid for by Lines for Fair and Equitable Policy.
5: That there were serious problems with Dong's nomination, there were serious irregularities and the MP was in fairly steady contact with Chinese consuls or the ambassador in uh, in uh, Ottawa, the Chinese ambassador. He never interviewed MP Dong. That wow. never came up either. So you start to get the picture of an old man. He'll be 82 this month. A slipshod investigation and not really fulsome discovery of facts or documents. OK, we start to get the picture.
3: Also, the uh, his selection for the lead counsel on, on this, uh, well, not an inquiry, but his investigation also turns out to be <laughs> yet again another longtime liberal supporter donor.
5: Longtime liberal uh, donor uh, w- with the Tories Law Firm in Toronto. Dave Johnson, look, all of us are uh, lose our faculties with advancing age. I'm a gray beard myself, not 82. Johnson at one point says, my lawyer friend, you know, she donated to all kinds of parties. Well, MPs checked the elections, Canada filings, and guess what, Richard? She didn't. She donated to the Liberal Party. He said, well, it was a few hundred dollars a year. It wasn't. It was thousands of dollars a year. Is that a conflict, he's asked. And he said, well, I, I think she's a good person. I don't, you know, she, she's got a great reputation. He, it was like he was describing himself. Mm. I'm a good person. Don't you see? How dare you? How dare <laughs> you question my integrity? It's just not working. It's not working, Richard. Um, so was he again sort of
3: pressured, not pressured, but uh, was he asked again, why Why no public inquiry during today's testimony?
5: Absolutely. And he was asked, he said, "MP said to him, you, you realize going back months now, three, four months, MPs have voted three times. A majority of the House of Commons have voted for an inquiry. Everyone supports it. Public opinion polls, everyone supports it except members of the government caucus. What is it about that you don't see? He did not repeat his assertion that a a public inquiry would be pointless, which he said in the report, because it was not going to find out anything I didn't find out. Well, I don't know, Dave, unless they call Elections Canada, right? Mm -hmm. they They got you beat there. But his his. He has this dogged determination. He said, I have a mandate from the government. I was hired to do a job and I'm going to do it. I don't think you need an inquiry. I think we can just have some public hearings, like a symposium. Richard, some people know what time it is and some people don't. What can I say?
3: All righty. Well, uh, I don't know what to say at this point. I just throw up my hands. I throw up my hands at this point. So we'll look forward to public meetings that so will go nowhere. Uh, Tom Korski, Managing Editor, Blacklocks Reporter, support independent media, blacklocks.ca. Tom, thank you, and uh, we'll talk again soon.
5: Thank you, Richard.
3: All right, we're opening up the phone lines at 289 275 9600. 289 275 9600. Back with more of The Richard Serrett Show and your comments when we return right here on Saga 960
4: listening to The Richard Sarek Show on Newstalk Saga, 960 AM.
3: 289 275 289 275 Your calls just ahead of Space Matters with Chris Vaughn. We'll look at the night sky coming up this week. Um, last, I think it was last week on the show, I spoke with uh, Drew Allen, host of The Drew Allen Show about this um, document FBI document which allegedly is the smoking gun proving then Vice President Joe Biden took a $5 million bribe from a foreign entity uh, to I don't know push for whatever this foreign entity this foreign official wanted to push for public policy. That's a bribe. It's against the law. It's treasonous um and there was some question as to whether chris ray fbi director was was going to release this document to members of congress finally he was basically subpoenaed and told you know if you don't you don't bring that document forward then we're gonna uh you'll be in contempt of congress so apparently one of the reasons the fbi is so insistent on preventing congress from having a look at that form That suggests, again, Joe Biden took a five million dollar bribe to act on behalf of foreign interests. The reason they're dragging their heels on this is that officials fear someone will kill the informant if that person is identified. In other words, the whistleblower who came forward anonymously and said the FBI has a document proving Joe Biden took a bribe as vice president. So basically, the FBI is saying If we bring this document forward and this whistleblower is identified, we fear for his life or her life. Again, this is a form, an FBI form that's been subpoenaed by Congress. And uh, the FBI allowed several members to see it. Uh, Senator Grassley from Iowa, and I'm not sure if it was uh, Senator, I'm not sure who the other senator was or a congressman. Anyway, it still hasn't been delivered as the law requires. So again, Congress is beginning a process to cite FBI director, Christopher Wray with uh, contempt. And this, the existence of the document was revealed to members of Congress by a whistleblower. And it apparently details again, how a foreign interest paid Joe Biden millions to make government decisions in its interest. So now one member of Congress has identified the apparent reason for the FBI's extreme efforts to keep all of this, Information secret. This is U.S. Representative Anna Paulina Luna, Republican from Florida, suggesting the FBI is afraid their informant will be killed if unmasked. One uh, social media commentator noted, so the FBI is admitting they don't even have the capacity or the capability of keeping their own whistleblowers safe? Sounds like they need to be disbanded and reworked completely. A uh, news outlet called Just the News reported Luna's remarks came the same day House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer. He was the other one that saw the uh, the document. It's called F.D. 1023. The form detailing the alleged scheme. And uh, Comer said it came from a trusted c- confidential source. Today, FBI officials confirmed that the unclassified FBI generated record has not been disproven and stated several times the information contained within it is currently being used in an ongoing investigation. Comer explained after seeing the document in a setting where he was not allowed to disclose its contents or take it with him. House Speaker um, Kevin McCarthy said, all members of Congress must be able to see this. I think originally they had negotiated for one Republican and one Democrat member of the house to look at it. And as Drew Allen explained, that's no good because the Republicans will spin it one way, the Democrats will spin it another. But if everybody gets to see it, it's a little harder to be, you know, partisan. A commentary at Twitch, he said, OK, we're not sure what to believe anymore. A whistleblower said the FBI had a document proving Joe Biden as vice president was involved in an international bribery sch- scheme. The House Oversight Republicans subpoenaed the document. FBI Director Chris Ray countered with this offer. I'll let you review the document, but you can't have it. It's now looking like the House GOP is going to initiate contempt charges against Wray. Uh, Representative Anna Paulin Luna tweeted Monday that she'd left. A House oversight meeting and the FBI is allegedly worried its informant could be killed if unmasked. Must be some pretty juicy stuff in that document. Well, who exactly would want this informant killed? I guess that's the number one question we have to ask. A whistleblower. Bringing attention to this FBI document allegedly proving this bribery scheme involving the vice president. And now the FBI says, if the document is shown, this individual could be killed if unmasked. Hmm. Who would want him killed? What is known about the FBI is that it conspired with the Democrat Hillary Clinton in 2016 in an attempt to hand her the presidency. That's election interference. Then it helped manufacture the now uh, debunked claims in Russiagate, which they falsely suggested Trump, uh, when they suggested the Trump campaign, colluded with Russia. Even Barack Obama was briefed at the time on Clinton's plan to spread those false rumors. To uh, divert, divert voters' attention from her own scandal involving her posting national secrets on an unsecure email system. Remember that? And then in 2020, the FBI participated in an effort to conceal accurate but very damaging reporting about the Biden family's international business dealings from the American public. That's also election interference. So when people say the 2020 election was rigged and they're labeled as conspiracy theories, look no further than what the FBI did. That's election interference. They rigged it. Because you had that that poll that came out that showed... Had people known about Joe Biden's involvement in those operations, they likely would have, he likely would have lost the election.
2: Are you concerned about equality and fair treatment for African-Americans? Do you believe in a future where our communities are safe from both crime and over-policing? is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy.
3: All right. uh, When we come back, Chris Vaughn will be here. Space Matters. He's a senior astronomer and Earth scientist at AstroGeo.ca. Also co-host of the YouTube live stream Insider's Guide to the Galaxy. We'll take a look at the night sky. That's coming up next. The Richard Serrett Show continues right here on Saga 960.
4: Back to the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. Ignition sequence start. Engines on.
3: Time once again to take another look at the night sky and what's happening this week. Chris Vaughn is Senior Astronomer and Earth Scientist at Astrogeo.ca and co-author of 110 Things to See with a Telescope. Chris, welcome back. How are you? Hey, Richard. I'm great. Sunny skies here where I am today. Beautiful. Let's take a look at the night sky this week as we move into June in the Northern Hemisphere. Darkness is getting in kind of short supply, isn't
0: it, this time of year? Oh, man, oh, man, it's not a great time to be an astronomer. You've got to wait so late before it gets dark, upwards of 11 p.m. these days before it gets really dark. Well, we've got planets, bright things in the sky that we can see uh, after sunset and before sunrise. I'm happy to give you a, a little overview of those if you'd like. Yeah. What's happening with uh, with Venus and Mars this week? Yeah. So Venus has been hanging out in the western sky after sunset for a few months now. Um, I think I might've mentioned last week that Venus has finally rounded the, t- the turn of its orbit and it's going to slowly start sinking back towards the sun over the next few weeks. But meanwhile, you've got the little bright, little, little, not too bright reddish dot of Mars, uh, hanging out to Venus's upper left. If you, um, if you want to learn how to measure the sky, if you take your fist and stretch it out at arm's length and close one of your eyes, your fist width across the sky is about ten degrees. that's about the distance apart the two will be are. So if you put your Venus on the sort of lower side of your fist, look for Mars on the upper left side of your fist, you can pick it out once it gets darker. you know Venus is going to pop out even before sunset, but Mars will need the sky to get a little darker before you see it right, right. and are they they're edging closer together as the summer progresses, or yeah, so actually they're both being they're both going to sort of be carried westward by the motion of the earth around the sun but uh mars is going to move a little bit faster than venus does so the two of them will close up to maybe half of that fist diameter in the next couple of weeks and then you'll see them start to spread apart again
3: all right so towards the end of the week uh if you're an early riser and you're looking in the southeastern sky what are you going to see vis-a-vis uh, saturn and the moon
0: yeah so all the um yep we've got the two bright planets in the evening sky, all the other bright planets are hanging out in the pre-dawn. So if you're an early riser, you've got a bit of a planet festival going on. The um, the planet Saturn rises first. It rises around two o'clock in the morning. So you can watch it between say three o'clock to sunrise as a kind of a creamy yellow dot in the southeastern sky. And on uh, the coming weekend, the ninth and 10th of June, the waning moon, almost a half moon, waning moon is going to hop past Saturn, a little bit below Saturn. So if you're out on Friday or Saturday morning, you can look for those two together. And then if you're up a little bit later, so let's say you're up around, you know, just before sunrise, uh, you can look for Jupiter. Jupiter is much, much brighter than Saturn, about 16 times brighter, and it's uh, farther over to your left. So lower and to your left, sort of right above the eastern horizon, not too high in the sky before sun. You might need to walk around and, and get the trees or a house out of your way for you to see Jupiter, but it's worth a look. Right.
3: Also at the end of the week, we get the last quarter moon, which is kind of interesting because
0: most of us don't see the last quarter moon. Why is that? Yeah. So just the way the, uh, the phases of the moon are tied to the angle of the moon away from the sun. And when we're getting towards the last quarter or third quarter, um, the moon is, basically 90 degrees ahead of the sun in the morning sky. So it it actually rises around midnight and then lingers into the early morning sky. So if you're, you know, out on your way to work or school in the morning, you can sometimes see the ghostly moon in the morning sky when it's at this phase of the month. And we love it. Astronomers love the third quarter moon coming because it means for the next 10 days or so we get deliciously dark evening skies that lets us look at some of the neat clusters and nebulas and things like that. So grab your binoculars after the end of this week.
3: Right. But in order to see that last quarter moon, you have to be, it it doesn't rise
0: until after midnight, right? Yeah. So if you're up, if you're up past midnight, you know, by the time it gets high enough to see it, you're probably into the one o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning sort of range. But just if you want to check out the moon, just go up, you know, after breakfast with your morning coffee and uh, take a look towards the south or east. And you'll see that moon, uh, you know, hanging like a ghost of the night in the morning sky for a couple of hours. Very cool. What's happening with Mercury towards the end of the week We're at the very end of the week? Yeah, Mercury is actually lurking in the same spot. It's down actually, you know, I mentioned that Jupiter was low in the sky. Um, Mercury's even lower. You literally need almost, um, you know, a waterfront sort of a thing to see Mercury. It's just tucked above the horizon. Um, and, you know, it's it's uh, it's going to be hanging out actually close to the planet Uranus and the asteroid Vesta. But they're not really something that we can see um, as beginners or as non-experts. It's going to be kind of too close to the sunrise. But if you live in the tropics or farther south where the ecliptic is more upright, then yes. Mercury, Mercury will be much easier to see if you live uh, due south of here. Very cool.
3: Just Just getting back to Saturn for a minute. Um, yeah. Are you able to 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 see the rings of Saturn with a pair of binoculars or do you need a really good telescope for that?
0: So I've been able to convince myself that I can tell Saturn isn't round with binoculars, but you'd need you'd need really good ones, bigger ones. Um, you might you might spot that it's not a perfect circle, um, but but any telescope will do even, uh, you know, one of those little uh, birding scopes or spotting scopes. Anything with a little bit more magnification than say your your 7x, your 10x binoculars will show you the rings. It's not a hard thing to see at all. All right. Uh anything else we should be looking at the, in the night sky? Any other notables? Well, if you've got your binoculars out and you're trying for Saturn, take a look at Jupiter. You can see Jupiter's four moons, the little row of them that line up beside the planet. And they actually they're orbiting the planet quite quickly. So every morning it's a different, it's a different arrangement of them. That's a fun thing to track too. Ah, very cool. Chris Vaughn, Senior
3: Astronomer and Earth Scientist at astrogeo.ca. And how do we watch the
0: YouTube live stream? Yeah, so we're going live on Insider's Guide to the Galaxy. It's on the Rask Canada YouTube channel starting at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time till 5 o'clock on Tuesdays. Uh, we've got a show this week and then we've got another show in a couple of weeks. And we're going to take a bit of a pause for the summer. All right. Enjoy the night sky. Keep looking up
3: all right hour two is coming up we've got a good one for you is barack obama on the 2024 ticket joe biden's hail mary solution i'll talk to joe kovacs award winning journalist with wnd about that sue ann levy award-winning investigative journalist from true north will be here to talk about the toronto district school board's culture of fear and silence and greg hill the founder and director of Free to Fly Canada, a 32 year Air Force veteran fired from his job as a captain with Air Canada. Uh, he'll be with us to talk about uh, their class action lawsuit uh, against arbitrary COVID related travel restrictions. Stay with us. The Richard Serrett Show continues right after these on Saga 960. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management.
1: Seeking truth and justice in a battleground of deception and corruption, this is The Richard
3: Serrett Show.
1: I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window Open it, stick your head out and yell. I'm as bad as hell, and
4: I'm not gonna take this anymore! We must not allow ourselves to be intimidated.
3: Our task is not only to win the battle, but to win the war. I'm we're
1: not in Kansas anymore. Take a look at this country through her eyes if you really want to see something. You'll see the whole parade of what man's carved out for itself after centuries of fighting. Yeah! You're
4: out of order. The whole trial is out of order. You have meddled with the primal forces of nature, and you
3: will atone. And welcome to hour two of the Richard Serrett Show. If you missed hour one, you missed a lot, but don't beat yourself up. Still, lots of great programming coming your way, including award winning journalist Joe Kovacs. He's with WND. And uh, this is a very interesting I don't know if it's a rumor or just someone kind of blue skying it. Uh, The idea is that Joe Biden may choose or have foisted upon him Barack Obama.
2: is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy.
3: As kind of a Hail Mary solution, Joe Joe Biden versus Donald Trump, uh, he's down like 10 points. Um, 70% of Democrats don't want want Joe Biden to run again. I mean, let's face it, he's just one more fall away from a long-term care facility. This is elder abuse trotting this fellow up there. I mean, I don't have a lot of sympathy. He's just uh, incredibly... Corrupt individual. However, someone floating the idea that Barack Obama could be placed on the ticket. I don't understand how that works constitutionally. Um, Eight years and you're out, right? That's it. After you serve eight years as president, you're no longer eligible under the constitution. And I believe you can't be chosen uh, as a vice presidential nominee if you are constitutionally prohibited from Assuming the office of president, because as vice president, you're one heartbeat away. Anyway, someone has figured something out, some loophole. We'll uh, speak to Joe Kovacs about that. Sue Ann Levy from True North will be here. She wrote a great piece about the Toronto District School Board's culture of fear and silence. The violence is rampant in in the public schools. Not just in the high schools, in the elementary schools. And teachers who speak up about it or complain about it, about, about being uh, harassed, threatened, assaulted in the schools. They, uh, they face certain reprisals, I guess. It is indeed a culture of fear and silence. What's going on? We'll find out. The organization Free to Fly Canada has launched a class action lawsuit against the uh, federal transport minister, and head of the monarchy for what they call Arbitrary Limitations on Charter-Protected Freedoms. The lawsuit details harms imposed on employees of various airline companies by Transport Canada's interim order respecting certain requirements for civil aviation due to COVID-19. Greg Hill is the founder and director of Free to Fly Canada, and he joins us now. Hey, Greg, how are you? Hey Richard I'm doing well appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to be here my pleasure uh, before we get to the lawsuit let's just to find out a little bit about you you were an um, Air Force veteran was it 32 years
6: yeah well I was in the regular force for 20 years flew transports uh, for the uh, Royal Canadian Air Force as it's called now and then in 2006 I went to a major Canadian airline Uh I was there until uh Things went sideways for all of us with the COVID era. Lost that job for the better part of a year, and then once the mandate uh, that we're, in part, discussing today was suspended, uh, June of uh, twenty two, uh, slowly worked my way back uh, back to flying. So, that's the case for uh, for a lot of the aviation workers. But I like to point out that some of them were outright fired and never did get their jobs uh, their jobs back.
3: Right. Um- and that year that you were prevented from working, uh, what, ha- what happened to you and your, and your family? How did you survive for that year?
6: Well, I like to say that flying airplanes, unless you've trained yourself appropriately, there's all sorts of lessons you learn along the way, but it doesn't transpose itself into uh, terribly gainful employment uh, outside of that sphere. So I, uh, I shoveled snow in the middle of the night for a while. I worked uh, for a like-minded uh, couple guys uh, in a small manufacturing plant uh, in my hometown, and um, some interesting stories across uh, across our aviation world of of what people did for that year to make ends meet. So, we sold our house, we downsized, we moved. There, there's all sorts of stories of how people got through that year um, through various means. And 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 so you you were uh, placed on unpaid
3: leave, shall we say, because you refused to take the COVID jab.
6: Yes, correct. And that's based on Transport Canada's interim order that we're talking about. And I'd like to point out it was called a leave of absence by the airlines. But that's rather farcical because there's nothing in our contracts where you have an involuntary leave of absence. A leave of absence is normally something you request to, to go back to the military, for instance. Uh, some of our pilots did that during that, that year that things died off in aviation till uh, till we came out the uh the other side. Uh, So I was on unpaid leave, but there was others who were uh, outright terminated. There's others who retired under duress. So there's a, there's a variety and a full spectrum of harms that that resulted.
3: Okay. So this class action lawsuit detailing harms imposed on employees of various airline companies. um, You say you're focusing on um, inducement. Uh, What do you mean by that?
6: Yeah, well, I appreciate you you asking. Uh, there's some that have reached out uh, just to get into some of the nuances strategically. And obviously, I like to say I'm a, I'm a pilot, uh, not a lawyer, but certainly understand the basics of it and the main thrust of our strategy. Uh, listen, we, we've sat back for the last year or two, and, and we have no illusions. The The judicial spectrum in this country is certainly challenging right now. And so coming out, as I guess you could call it late, as uh, in comparison to some some other lawsuits that have been filed, has enabled us to to gather some information and to understand where the courts are at. So this particular strategy inducement, to induce means to persuade or influence essentially. So what happened is is we've got this order that came out, I think you read it before. It's very long-winded. We we refer to it colloquially as the the mandate, but it was called the interim order respecting certain requirements for civil aviation and they would update that every every couple of weeks. Well, what that did, we've got hard-fought contracts within our industry like like most and by placing this order out there, you've now induced a breach of that contract through these suspensions, these terminations and otherwise. So that's the main thrust of it. As you've mentioned, there's also aspects of both the privacy act as well as uh, the Charter uh, section, various sections, 2A, 2D, uh, Section uh, 7, Section uh, 15, I believe, is in there as well. Uh, but the main thrust is inducement. And this is something that we haven't seen uh, brought out in the courts uh, over, over certainly the past uh, several years. There is case law precedent in other spheres, which which is an important aspect. But it's not something that's that's been uh, brought in relation to these COVID mandates over the past several years. Um,
3: did I read something about um, that because of the, the the covid jab was still technically in a, in a clinical trial phase and in your particular sector, aviation, uh, having having pilots who have obviously hundreds and hundreds of lives in their hands at any given moment mm-hmm. in, in, involved in a medical experiment, probably not uh, very prudent.
6: No, uh, you're absolutely correct. What you might have seen was that come out of the U.S. Uh, Their, um, I'll call it rules in relation to vaccination, are a little bit different than ours. But we definitely had something on the Transport Canada website that essentially said pilots should not participate in any sort of medical trial. And myself and several others were emailing some of our Transport Canada doctors before this mandate came out saying, essentially, what gives? We've got concerns. We've been absolutely obsessed with safety within aviation uh, for decades, as we should be. And Transport Canada was fully a part of that. But around 2020, 2021, that seems to have less and less been their concern. There There was nothing done as far as safety concerns with respect to Masking, for instance, because it wasn't forbidden. So essentially you could wear a mask in the flight deck if you're the type of person that wanted to. But this has massive implications in, in case of a, let's say an explosive decompression where you instantly go to 30 some thousand feet, your time of useful, useful consciousness is reduced. And when it came to these jabs, we brought up these issues and asked all sorts of good questions. Well, what happened? And we put it out on our Twitter feed back in 2021 uh, using what's something that's called the Wayback Machine where you can go and look at the history of websites. Well, 10 days after these letters went back and forth, they just full on memory hold that particular sentence. You can look at the before and after it was there and it's been there for at least a decade, I would say. And it overnight disappeared and it's never returned. Can you do something about that legally? Uh, I, I'm not sure exactly. I don't think so. But what it certainly does is it raises all sorts of questions as to why do you feel the need for this to be removed if you're genuinely concerned? And, and our aviation uh, world, like I said, is has something at its foundation called Safety Management uh, System, SMS. And the, the gist of that is... Good questions should be asked. Um, management as well as employees should partner together. I mean, I, I don't fly my airplane that way. I don't, I don't show up and kick the tires and say, hey, you know what? We might be late if we don't skip all sorts of uh, briefings and skip all sorts of checklists. We're just going to fire up the engines because, hey, let's be honest. In this modern era, things are pretty safe. It's sub 1% that we're going to have a catastrophic engine failure on takeoff. Let's just get this baby airplane and get the, get the the uh, get the on time. I would probably be out of a job within a week if I tried that, but this is what these companies in Transport Canada expected us to do with our bodies. And I would say those of us who are genuinely concerned, uh, certainly about our own safety, but also about the success and safety of our airlines and our passengers uh, chose not to and uh, and were either out of work for uh, the better part of the year or are still unemployed.
3: Greg Hill is founder and director of Free to Fly Canada. And um, they've launched a class action lawsuit against arbitrary COVID-related travel restrictions. Back with more of our conversation in three minutes.
4: Welcome back to The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk, Saga 960 AM.
3: And we are back with Greg Hill, founder, director of Free to Fly Canada, a former uh, veteran and um, also was uh, suspended from his job as a captain with Air Canada where he uh, flew for nearly two decades. And again, they have launched a class action lawsuit against the, uh, the government for arbitrary COVID-related travel restrictions. The, um, the initial um, plaintiffs, I guess there were three, a uh, pilot, a flight attendant, and an airport station attendant. Um, are you taking, are there others joining the class action? And if so, how do they qualify?
6: Right. I uh, appreciate the question. Uh, w- w- the, the first hurdle we've got to get through here, obviously, is uh, certification. So the three uh, plaintiffs kind of have the, uh, I guess we'll call it the, the heavy lifting, along with our lawyer, Omar Sheik, uh, to gather all the information and otherwise. Uh, but we're we're taking people presently. Uh, you can, I think it's very important that people fully inform themselves. We've certainly learned, uh, we've learned that lesson, haven't we, over the past two or three years. So that goes for things like uh like any sort of sort of legal, legal action as well, I encourage people to take the time to read the full statement of claim. You can find that on our uh, on our website; it's right on the front page. So read through it. Uh, essentially, um, we'll have a, a frequently asked question list up there because we are getting a lot of questions. But it's essentially those who uh, were subject to harm based on that interim order. So that's specific to the aviation realm because it was an interim order relevant to civil aviation. And it's also the unvaccinated uh, because it was the unvaccinated that uh, in the end uh, suffered that harm, whether, like I said, it was uh, termination, suspension, uh, retirement under duress. Uh, so, so that's the uh, it's it's somewhat narrowly focused, I guess, if you compare it to something that would uh, affect the entire nation as a whole. Um, but again, if you take the time to read the uh, the pleading, and we're we're certainly uh, welcoming anybody with uh, with questions, and and those are actually helpful for us to to help dial in our messaging and make it clear to everybody as well. Do you have your day in court yet? When, when is it scheduled? No, we don't have uh, the date just yet. The, uh, the it has been uh, has been filed, but we don't have uh, dates uh, just yet. I've got a, a meeting coming up here with with our lawyer to to get a few ans- uh, answers to questions like that because people do want to understand the timeline. I would I would say certainly. The timeline will be long. These things typically, certainly if they run their full course, you're, you're looking uh, at years rather than months. That's just the nature of our judicial system. It's uh, it's very backed up. But certainly if you take something like this all the way to the wall, uh, it'll take a great deal of time um, to to get ourselves uh, all the way through the system. But the first hurdle is that, uh, that certification. Uh, we're taking people's uh, signups uh, at this time.
3: Are you able, willing to disclose what damages you're seeking?
6: Not in terms of, uh, of the financial numbers uh, specifically. Uh, the, the statement of claim certainly outlines a number of, of damages in terms of general, special, exemplary, and punitive. But uh, but in terms of assigning dollar values to those specifically, uh, not not at this time. Uh, the website
3: is free to flyca free uh, what about for, the, for those in, in the, uh, the sector, the industry, uh, who have suffered adverse events, uh, injuries, perhaps even deaths, family members, survivors? Mm-hmm. Um, what, what is Free to Fly um, doing for, for those people?
6: Yeah, so I, I, sadly, I have spent uh, hours on the phone. With, uh, with jab injured uh, aviation employees, those are difficult phone calls for sure. And that runs the full spectrum of, of what you see across every industry. We're, we're, no, we're no different as far as the harms that have been suffered. So you've got everything from myocarditis to blood clotting, hearing loss, uh, autoimmune dysfunction, etc., So we're certainly, it's not a minor thing to actually sit and listen and have these phone calls because part of it's just the emotional uh, support. So I don't want to downplay that. But we've also uh, on our website got uh, some basic information in terms of what you can do to try and uh, at least lessen the effects of some of those harms. Um, We're looking at options as far as getting proper full heart testing uh, for some of our flight crews as well. Uh, Unbelievably, and and, uh, we don't have the time to really get into it in depth, but unbelievably in this country, Transport Canada, and as far as I know, we're the only country uh, internationally that's allowing this, has perpetuated this this exemption to allow our pilots to – we used to have a, a medical exam every year in person for very, very obvious reasons of safety. During COVID, they were uh, allowing us to go as long as 36 months. So you could do two telemedicals. You basically just phone in and say, I feel subjectively fine. And you got stamped and carried on. And uh, they, they unbelievably in March of this year perpetuated that. They no longer have the COVID reasoning. They've they've chosen convenience, flexibility as the reason. And I say, when in the history of aviation has flexibility and convenience Ever, ever trumped safety, but that's what Transport Canada is allowing. So we're in a situation now where we've got uh, we've got pilots that can go as long as thirty six months without uh, seeing a Transport Canada doctor, without getting an EKG uh, or otherwise. So that's uh, that's Transport Canada, and that's how they've approached aviation safety uh, certainly since since twenty twenty. I, I don't want to paint them with a multi decade brush because that wasn't my experience uh, pre COVID. If, if you had mentioned as a pilot that you had let's say chest pains once a week uh, in the evenings you you typically be grounded while they checked you out and i've heard stories of uh, of that not being uh, the case from some of our some some of our guys and gals so it is concerning
3: yeah it's very telling and uh, it's speculation but you know why would you um um not you know provide ekgs for your pilots unless you're concerned that many of the pilots would fail that test because of things like myocarditis other adverse effects from the vaccine again that's speculation but and mm-hmm. has to be put out there wouldn't
6: you think yeah i'm mean, like you said it's speculative but uh, but the confidence has not grown since 2020 put it that way and, and i've had conversations with some of our pilots and to their credit they're concerned themselves they're not confident with with some of the help that they've gotten from the i'll just say broadly the canadian medical system period and they're looking at options to get themselves tested properly because, a, obviously, they're concerned about their own health uh, for the sake of themselves and their loved ones. But they're also responsible pilots who uh, want the success and safety of their uh, of their passengers uh, and their airline. And, and they're looking at independent solutions to try and verify where they're at from a cardio uh, cardiac standpoint.
3: Greg Hill, founder, director of Free to Fly Canada. The website is free to fly.ca. Greg, I wish you uh, all the best with this, uh, law spe- uh, this uh, lawsuit. Godspeed. Thanks, Richard. All right. When we come back, the Toronto District School Board's culture of fear and silence. Sue Ann Levy from True North is next.
4: The Bull Session continues on The Richard Serrett Show. News Talk, Saga, 960 AM. A few weeks ago, we talked about the rampant violence
3: at um, Tompkin Road Elementary School in Mississauga, an elementary school, and uh, one teacher writing a letter anonymously complaining about threats, harassment, violence, and uh, the school board and the school administrators couldn't seem to care less. Now another teacher's come out uh, and written about concerns of violence at their school, but this one is not in Peel Region, but in the Toronto District School Board. Sue Levy, award-winning investigative journalist with True North, joins us once again. Hey, Sue how are you?
7: I'm good. How are you, Richard?
3: Very well, very well. Obviously very disturbed. Uh, this is just becoming uh commonplace we're hearing about this this violence but this is uh above and beyond the violence which is bad enough is that the the teachers are facing reprisals if they complain about the violence so tell me about this elementary school teacher that wrote this open letter uh what 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 was she saying
7: well she she was saying just that that you know there it's it's a daily occurrence not to uh be treated with respect And that uh, much of what I said uh, about Tompkins Tompkins school in Mississauga, um, violence daily issues in the washroom, um, you know, kids just skipping class and sitting in the halls, making noise. Um, And remember, these are all um, elementary schools. So this is also an elementary school. So, you know, these kids are are not that old, Um, but the, the, the other thing, the worst thing about it is that um, you can tell that they, uh, not only are the superintendents and the administrators not taking it seriously, uh, nor is the principal, but if you speak out, uh, as she said, and uh, speak up against the violence, um, you can either be disciplined or uh, you may be sent to another school. Reassigned. This is the famous thing that the Toronto School Board does is they just move people around to different schools.
3: So you mentioned this think, yeah. culture of fear and silence. It, if it's mm-hmm. a culture, it sounds like it's been around for a while. You can't have a culture that just, you know, instantaneously uh, produces itself. It has to be something deeply ingrained. How long has this been going on with oh. the district
2: school board? is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy.
7: Well, almost 20 years because uh, Julian Falconer did a report way back in the 2000s. I think it was two f- 2005 or 2006 uh, where he talked about the culture of fear and the fear of, repi- fear of reprisal, the fear by teachers to speak up about violence issues. Um, and uh, interestingly enough, I also did a story about... Uh, Way back when I was with the Toronto Sun, about a teacher who was teaching grade eight and um, ran into similar issues. But then Margaret Wilson came in. um, She was a preeminent, well known education consultant Mm -hmm. in 2015. And she said the same thing that, you know, they're afraid to even send emails to each other, that there's a real culture of fear, they're afraid to speak up uh a lot of people, a lot of teachers just, you know, bow their head, put their heads down and uh, do what they have to do. But I think what's happened since that time when she was um, providing her review. And let me tell you, the school board always promised to do better, to do better. They put in, you know, initiatives. But I think what's happened now is that it's so pervasive and uh, teachers are actually getting hurt and they're actually fearing for their for their personal safety. And I think that's why they're all starting to speak out because, you know, sweeping these issues under the rug even goes back 20, 30 years when I was first covering education in the nineties, but now teachers are actually really being hurt.
3: And now you have, um, you know, in in the intervening period now, over let's say with the last five years, now you have this layer of wokeness at the school board level. Yeah. Uh, which we'll is, we'll, we'll, we'll touch on that when we come back. Sue Ann Levy, award winning investigative journalist with True North and author of Underdog Confessions of a Right Wing Gay Jewish Muckraker. We'll uh, take a quick time. I'll come back and continue to discuss the culture of fear and silence at the Toronto District School Board. More of The Richard Serrett continuing right after these on Saga 960.
4: Just having a little chin wag on The Richard Saracho News Talk, Saga 960 AM. Chaos and violence is rampant inside
3: Toronto schools, elementary schools, uh, and yet teachers face punishment if they dare speak out about it. We're talking about the culture of fear and silence at the TDSB. Sue Ann Levy, award-winning investigative journalist with True North is here. Where's the union, the, uh, the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario and all this? Uh, why are they not standing up for their members?
7: <laughs> What a joke. Well, they complain that the members are being attacked and the violence is ramped up more than ever. Um, But uh, they do nothing to help the teachers because uh, they kind of like, you should pardon the expression, suck and blow, because they complain about it. But they also buy into the woke policies that have created or ramped up this violence. What I'm talking about is the fact that under Kathleen Wynne, and it started to evolve from there, and Doug Ford has done nothing to correct it, is that um, progr- did, they call it progressive discipline. So they engage in restorative justice where they actually talk to these poor little kids and like give them a hug and, and say, please, Johnny, do better next time. There are no consequences for bad behaviors. Uh, suspensions are largely not meted out anymore. Expulsion, certainly not. And you know they they find that that the thinking is, and certainly at the Toronto School Board, under a, an education director who I say is a Black activist first and an educator second, um, they find that discipline is oppressive and they're going to the poor, oppress the poor little darlings. So they don't even care about the victims of whether it's teachers or other kids.
3: What are they going to wait until a teacher is seriously injured or killed?
7: Probably some have already been, you know, uh, well, certainly faced with threats. But, yeah, I guess that's the case. I don't know. They're given their tendency to be secretive and sweep things under the rug. Who knows what's already happened, Richard? But, you know, I admire these teachers who are coming out of the woodwork. I have a letter from another one that I'll be writing in, a, you know, the next couple of days. He talks about he, uh, he, I believe it's a he, talks about all the, um seminars and training they're supposed to take that makes them feel like they're you know if they're white they're oppressors and you know they talk about anti-racism and on and on and on um what they've done is they've empowered the criminals they you know and it's hard to say that and i hate to say it but kids as young as probably uh 10 11 12 are causing some of the big problems now, you know, and that goes back to absentee parenting, uh, parents not caring. Uh, the teacher in this current letter uh, said that, um, you know, they talk, sit down, and they talk about this restorative justice. If, if the parents deem to show up, many of them don't.
3: What would happen if a police, you know, this is starting to remind me of the uh, the two employees at Lululemon that were fired for calling the police on, um, you know, mm-hmm. s- some thugs who broke into the store and were stealing items. They were fired because they have a zero tolerance against, I guess, intervening or anyway, they called the police and they're fired. It reminds me of that. Uh, if this is going on in the elementary schools in Toronto, how bad mm-hmm. is it in the high schools?
7: <laughs> well, I think that probably really bad. Probably, well, all you have to do is look at the number of shootings that have happened on school properties, In in certainly in like, for example, Scarborough and some of the other schools in Toronto. All you have to do is look at York Memorial and all the problems there, um, where several teachers, I think more than a dozen, uh, quit or took leave. Um, so you know, the, the school board, interestingly enough, the Toronto school board had. It all came to kind of a head in the fall um, with all these um, incidents happening one after another. And what they did is they held a special board meeting. They talked about hugging the kids more. They don't talk about consequences. I mean, these people are so out to lunch and so buried in their woke agenda that they don't even realize that, you know, they're sitting on a time bomb now. I, you know, school's going to be out probably high school out in the next week or so. School's going to be out, so it's going to simmer over to the fall, but this isn't going away.
3: And uh, where, oh, where, we we again ask, like a broken record, is Minister of Education Stephen Leachie in all this?
7: Oh, my God, yeah, I don't know. I think he's hiding under his bed. Um, you know, uh, there's so many issues that he hasn't weighed in about. It's it's. I mean, they're starting to... I I would put together an honor roll for him, a report card, uh, Busty Lemieux, the teacher from Halton, who was wearing those fake breasts. Um, the, uh, teacher uh, that I exposed recently, who's with the Catholic board, who's tweeting about the gay agenda and had a, a non-binary black Jesus in his classroom. I mean, the, the list of stuff goes on and on and on. Um, and, uh, you know, he is AWOL.
3: And again, if a staff member is feels threatened or has been assaulted uh, or is being harassed, if they ask for some kind of, uh, I don't know, a safety meeting, they could be suspended. That's what's happening. Yeah,
7: if, if they even admit, even admit that their school is less than a safe, comforting like, uh, place of safety, you know, all the buzzwords that they use. Um that there are safe spaces, they even suggest that there are problems they could be disciplined, and if they really push it, they will well they can 't fire them, so they just move them to another school, or you know the famous Toronto school board um uh, you know their their way of handling things is to send them home and pay them
3: right. Well, uh, you have another letter and you're ready to write about that tomorrow. And I'm sure there'll be more yeah. and more and more and perhaps yeah. avalanche. And, and um, well, let's hope so. Let's let's hope that more and more teachers feel emboldened enough to come out and um, and talk about this very serious issue. Sue Levy, award winning investigative journalist with True North and uh, again, the author of Underdog Confessions of a Right Wing Gay Jewish Muckrager. Thanks, Sue Talk again soon.
7: Thank you, Richard. Bye. Bye bye.
3: All right. Is Barack Obama on the 2024 ticket Joe Biden's Hail Mary solution? Joe Kovacs is with WND, and he'll discuss this next. Stay with us.
4: Let's rejoin the conversation on The Richard Serrett Show on News Talk Saga 960 AM. All right. Welcome back.
3: The 22nd Amendment to the United States Constitution... Limits the number of times a person is eligible for election to the office of President of the United States to two and sets additional eligibility uh, conditions for presidents who succeed to the unexpired terms of their predecessors, i.e., Gerald Ford. So, in other words, the 22nd Amendment would seem to preclude former President Barack Obama not only from running for president again, but also on the surface, it would seem he would be ineligible. Uh, to be a vice president. That's not stopping some on the left, though, from promoting this idea of putting Barack Obama on the ticket with Joe Biden for the 2024 U.S. presidential election. Joe Kovacs is an award-winning journalist with WND and the author of the brand new best-selling book "Reaching God's Speed: Unlocking the Secret Broadcast, Revealing the Mystery of Everything." Joe, welcome. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so
8: much for having me on your program.
3: My pleasure. So you're uh, referring to this as kind of a Hail Mary pass uh, or a Hail Mary attempt. Uh, the Democrats, obviously, and with good reason, worried about uh, Joe Biden as their 2024 uh, presidential nominee. And um, uh, Kamala Harris uh, is probably even less popular uh, than Joe Biden. But so who is who is the primary um Uh, Person that's that's pushing this idea of putting Barack Obama on the ticket?
8: Well, it was uh, coming from Philip Allen Lacovera, who's probably not a household name, but he did serve as Deputy Solicitor General of the United States. He was also a counsel to the Watergate Special Prosecutor way back in the day of Watergate uh, in the 1970s and uh, also president of the District of Columbia Bar. He's a leftist attorney and Uh, He's throwing this Hail Mary idea out there because, uh, you know, Grandpa Biden is, you know, he can't find his pants every day and he doesn't know where he is. And as you mentioned, Kamala Harris, the vice president, is, you know, who's less popular, Joe Biden or Kamala Harris? That is uh, a question of the ages. But, uh, you know, what could possibly rescue this ticket? And Philip LaCovera is suggesting The Hail Mary of putting Barack Hussein Obama back on the ticket, not as president, because as you mentioned, he's constitutionally ineligible to run for president. But he claims that there is a some sort of loophole in the Constitution in the 22nd Amendment that would allow him to run as vice president and not president. And if I could specify what he's getting at, the amendment provides, quote, no person shall be elected to the office of the president more than twice. So it specifies elected to the office of the president more than twice. It doesn't mention any other office such as vice president. So that's, that's his uh, shoehorn move uh, to, to, to get in there. Whether it's legal or not, that is a completely uh, different question.
3: Right, so there's nothing in the Twenty Second Amendment, and I just kind of summarized it. There's nothing in the Twenty Second Amendment or anything elsewhere in the Constitution about uh, the, the Vice President.
8: Uh, well, the Twelfth Amendment does mention Vice President, uh, and he, he he brings that up in his column, saying, uh, "Here it is quote No person constitutionally." ineligible to the office of president shall be eligible to that of vice president of the United States. And he has, he has the phrase, uh, constitutionally ineligible to the office of president. So, you know, if, if this did come up, if, if they did go through with it, and I don't think they have, uh, you know, the, uh, the gumption to the, uh, the guts to, to do it, uh, although he thinks they should, uh, it would definitely get a challenge, of course, from, whomever is the Republican nominee, whether that would be Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis or whomever the Republicans decide to uh, put at the top of their ticket.
3: So, right, because on the surface, it would seem that you said the 12th Amendment talks about the vice president. You can't be a vice president if you're constitutionally ineligible for the office of president, which takes us to the 22nd Amendment, which says Barack Obama can't be president. Uh, because he's already served eight years, that would make him constitutionally ineligible to the office of president. So then we go back to Amendment 12. So you're saying they might just go ahead with this and let the Supreme Court decide?
8: Well, you know, the Democrats in America are famous for not following the laws of the land. It's just what they do. Everybody knows it's what they do. So uh, the question is, why uh, wouldn't they go ahead with this? Now, you know, there are other... uh, uh big names uh, if if Joe Biden doesn't want to uh, have uh Kamala Harris on his ticket again you know he could uh choose anybody he wants he, he does have opposition already running for president uh in this uh election he's got Robert F Kennedy Jr yes. uh the son of the famous Bobby Kennedy of uh the 1960s fame um, uh, there's uh Marianne Williamson who uh, already ran last time and and, and lost significantly So, there are other people on the Democrat side uh, already running. And there may be some other big names, uh, such as Gavin Newsom, uh, the governor of California, and an even bigger name that is actually has the same last name as Barack Obama, and that's Michelle Obama. There are many people who suspect uh, that Michelle Obama herself, the former First Lady of the United States, will enter the race, not for vice president, but for president, and challenge uh, uh, Joe Biden, who is extremely weak in the polls and uh, is extremely weak everywhere. I mean, he can barely get around. Uh, he can only do his job you know, between certain hours of the day uh, before it's nap time. And it's, uh, it's, it's a really sad situation when you have uh, such a, a weak... Uh, politically weak person and physically weak uh, uh, as well as uh, politically weak at the top of your ticket. So uh, there, there are websites out there, you know, of Democrats urging Joe Biden not to run again, uh, but but he has announced that he is running again. So it's going to be interesting to see if Michelle Obama jumps in the race, if Gavin Newsom jumps in the race. Uh, the networks in America are not giving any airtime or very little airtime to. To Bobby Kennedy Jr. because he's so anti-vaccine, and they're of course all on board with the the vaccine narrative. So uh, he's not getting a lot of publicity, but he is he is campaigning. Uh he's quite well. I think
3: tw- like twenty percent in the polls. Uh, right,
8: and 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 and, it, and it's so it's so astonishing because people don't know that he's running, <laughs> and yet he's doing so well in the polls, and. You know, there's not going to be any Democrat debates. They've already announced that, which is astonishing in itself. How can you have a presidential election without anybody, you know, getting up and answering questions about the most uh, important issues of the day? So it's it's a very odd situation of what's going on this year.
3: Uh, Well, perhaps the Democratic machine is quite happy with Joe Biden because he's so uh, easily manipulated and controlled. Uh, Who's ever behind uh, you know, who's ever running the teleprompter um, and is actually you know running the Joe Biden administration. Maybe they're quite content to have Joe Biden uh, and Kamala Harris uh, as the ticket going into 2024.
8: I don't can doubt that. Again. For, I don't doubt that for a second. I mean, if you remember in the last election cycle, Joe Biden did not go out on the road and campaign too much. He stayed in the basement in his own basement in uh, Wilmington, Delaware, and and campaign from there, just doing videos. And when he did go out, there would be like 12 people show up uh, and everybody was socially distanced at the time. There would be more media there than than uh, the people, the, the, the supposed crowds that would show up. But when Donald Trump the same year was going out, he was filling stadiums all across America. People couldn't get enough of him. So it's, uh, you know, how uh, Joe Biden ever won that election is. Is a mystery, of course. There are the theories that uh, it was a rigged, stolen election, that right. Donald Trump claims, et cetera.
3: The uh, FBI said, don't just relax, Joe. Stay in the basement. We got this. We got this.
8: Right. And when you have other people pulling the strings for you and doing all the work, it makes your job much easier because you have uh, big tech on your side, you have the national media on your side, you have the, uh, uh, the powers that be, the, the, the deep state, uh, as people like to say in politics. Uh, Helping you out. So he doesn't really have to do anything except keep breathing. So far, he's been able to do that. I don't know if he's got a device helping him to do that. But so far, uh, he's still alive, as we can, uh, as we suspect anyway.
3: Barack Obama on the 2024 ticket as joe biden's hail mary solution well uh something interesting to think about anyway i if i were a betting man i would say michelle obama definitely um is going to uh to run we'll uh we'll watch with interest joe kovacs award-winning journalist with wnd and author of reaching God's Speed: unlocking the secret broadcast revealing the mystery of everything joe great to speak with you thank you so much
8: certainly a pleasure thank you for having me
3: All right, that's it for me. My thanks to Jody, Jacob, and Ryan. I'll be back tomorrow to do it all over again. God willing, I'll speak with you at four. Don't be late. Until then, I remain unbowed, unbent, unbroken.
2: Is running out. This message is paid for by Alliance for Fair and Equitable Policy. An official message from Medicare.
1: A new law is helping me save more money on prescription drug costs. Maybe you can save too. With Medicare's extra help program, my premium is zero and my out of pocket costs are low. Who should apply? Single people making less than $23,000 a year or married couples who make less than $31,000 a year, even if you don't think you qualify. It pays to find out. Go to ssa.gov slash extra help.
0: Paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. An official message from Medicare.
1: A new law is helping me save more money on prescription drug costs. Maybe you can save too.